I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem or several poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, Poem Talk has once again gone on the road, this time to Brooklyn, New York, where I, with Poem Talk's director and editor, Zach Cardner, have been welcomed warmly into the home of Charles Bernstein and Susan B., and are joined by Pierre Joris, poet, translator, playwright, critic, winner of the 2021 Penn Ralph Mannheim Award for Translation, translator and editor most recently of Memory Rose into Threshold Speech, the collected earlier poetry of Paul Ceylon and author of many books of his own writing, including recently Fox Trails, Tales, and Trots. And by Rachel Levitsky, author of The Story of My Accident is Ours and Under the Sun, both out from Future Poem, Neighbor, Ugly Duckling Press, Against Travel, Anti-Voyage, or maybe it's Anti-Voyage, I don't know, which one is it? Either one, Voyage, Paminar, uh, 2020, and other books who in 1999 founded the feminist avant-garde network Belladonna Series and who is now a member of the restructured Belladonna Collaborative, a non-hierarchical literary community. And by Leanne Brown, poet, editor, teacher, stirrer-up of poetry community happenings and maker of multimedia poetry events, founder back in 1989 of the great Tender Buttons Press, whose books include In the Laurels Caught, Other Archer, Polyverse, and others, and who for the past year has been working on not one, not two, not three, not four, but five long and short-term poetry manuscripts and collaborations with the likes of Bernadette Mayer, uh, Will Patton, David Kirschenbaum, Julie Patton on a big Tender Buttons publication. And, and by our aforementioned host, Charles Bernstein, whose newest book is Topsy-Turvy, full of cognitive dissidence, what's new, covidity, and unruliness, what's new there either. Published by Chicago, poet, editor, essayist, theorist, scholar, librettist, editor way back with Bruce Andrews of Language Magazine, co-founder with me of Penn Sound, and in recent years, happily settled Brooklynite. So, Charles, thank you for having us here. And Pierre, congratulations on the prize. Thank you. It's very exciting. And everywhere I turn now, I was saying before we went on the air, that maybe my um, media sphere is too narrow and it seems like everybody's talking about it, but I think it's, I think the work that you've done with these translations has, has gotten out. I think everybody is realizing what a big thing it is. So thanks on behalf of all of us. And Leanne Brown, you came all the way from North Carolina to talk about Thule. We haven't mentioned that we're talking about Thule, but we are. Yes, thank you. I love Thule. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to find that out. And Rachel, thank you for studying up on Thule. Thank you. It's a much needed immersion into someone who I clearly am aligned with in every way. <laughs> well, today we five have gathered to talk about two poem songs by Thule Kupferberg. The first is perhaps his most well-known song written for and performed by the Fugs, Morning Morning. It first appeared as a track on the album entitled The Fugs, in March of 1966. The second piece we'll discuss is No Deposit, No Return, 
the title cut on an album subtitled An Evening of Pop Poetry with Thule Kupferberg, also of 1966. This song and the entire album, along with liner notes, are available on our Thule page at Penn Sound, reproduced with the kind permission of Samara Kupferberg. Before we talk, let's listen now to Morning Morning and No Deposit, No Return. deposit no return no deposit no return we try harder we try harder we try harder we try harder it's the taste that really tells it's the taste that really tells when it rains it always pours when it rains it always pours the army makes a man of you the army makes a man of you only her hairdress and nose for sure only her hairdress and nose for sure no deposit no return 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 Leanne Brown, we've just heard two pieces. They're very different Thule pieces, but I guess I want to start with a counterintuitive question, which is, they are different. They're coming from two musical places, but in a way, they're both so Thule. How so? What what do they have in common? Well, I'd have to say, first of all, that they, they do show the range of the sort of crass and sublime part of Thule, and also that he's this deepest melancholy and this and also this deepest delight 
um, and they're both inherent in both of the pieces. But I think one thing that unites them formally is that there's this simplicity to them. I mean, there's no chorus in this gorgeous morning morning. It's the same tune, the same verse. And then the other is like this wild chant that's like a, you know, out demon out kind of thing, you know. Mm. But there's like a DIY um, embrace mm. that's happening. Ah, oh, that's great. Great way to start. Charles, the sensibility, the Thule sensibility is also in both. What, what is that? How would you I, put your I finger on that sensibility? I answer. It's just absolutely so crystalline. It's uh, perfect. Well, one thing I'd say in common is, is the year, which is fascinating, 1966. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. that's sort of hard to completely take in, that he was doing that as well as uh, 1,001 ways uh, to beat the draft, also 6667, which is yet another sensibility, and that that we're focusing just on this one year. So 66 adequately stands for what I like to call nowadays 1968. And I think that you can understand what Leanne is saying in terms of the best of the spirit of 68. I, I turned 18 in 1968 and uh, uh, heard these things when I was a teenager. Uh, and uh, it, to me, it's very much a part of what the anti-war movement and the and the movement against racism, the civil rights movement, uh, which uh, we now think of to some degree as the counterculture, but I think that Kupferberg is is going way beyond the more superficial understandings of the of the of the counterculture. So that it's political, on the one hand, of course, and no deposit, no return. But there's something very um, uh, visionary about. The, the morning morning song. So it combines both the, the Blakeian and the political, which I think for, for my generation, uh, you know, was what, what we thought was, was going on. Interesting, the 66-68 thing. I mean, one way, Pierre, we can talk about this in terms of political eras is, as Charles implied, this is a kind of premonition a couple of years earlier of, um, I mean, the draft is... is, is st- starting to get to be a big issue in 66, it becomes a much bigger issue in 68, 69, just affecting more people. So does it seem, Pierre, to you to be kind of anticipatory in some ways uh, of a certain aspect of counterculture? What's the political read? Morning, morning is a little hard to read politically, but we have to, I think. No, I I think both are. Both are totally in that uh, moment because that moment had that hard political edge and at the same time an incredible romanticism that is an opening up of every level of of the body and the mind. So, you know, the sexual was there as much as the political. The sexual is the political, you know, and the daily life was totally part of that. And so, wow, breaking down the 50s, the hardness of the 50s, you know, in this country, but in Europe too. In 67, I was on Route 66, (laughs) <laughs> and in, I stopped with an old friend of mine. We were the first time I drove across the country. And we stopped somewhere in a bar in uh, Arizona. And I saw a sign on the door. And that sign totally blew me away because I was learning American, a certain language thing. That said, no shoes, no shirt, no entry. And immediately when I heard the Tully poem again, that, you know, no deposit, no return, there is an American syntax there that you don't have in any of the other languages, right? There is an incredible, interesting play going on, you know, what, wait, that means nothing or that means a positive, right? And that whole play between those two 
uh, had me, uh, uh, I mean, amused and I loved it, you know, the discovery of it. That is such a brilliant comment. Oh, my God, Rachel. Yeah, it's beautiful. What do we do with that? That's amazing. Well, I, you know, it occurred to me that both of that my experience of both of them has a lullingness and a breakage, both, mm-hmm. as well, which actually goes with that, with what you're saying, Pierre, and but, but, what everybody's saying, but... but this lullingness is maybe the part that I haven't really thought through much until this moment, um, but it makes sense with the, the ongoingness, like that there was always music being made from the most mundane thing, but also when I sort of my eye went to um, the the moonshine stanza, right? Can you and, read that moonshine stanza? Sure, moonshine, moonshine, moon. I start almost started singing moonshine. Moonshine, moonshine drugs the hills with grace, and the secret of the shining seeks to break my simple face. Sorry. That's quite an ending. That's quite a last line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? So the, 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 sort of the, the desire to sort of fade out, to drop out, is there, is honored, but also the, the danger of that desire. So like breaking you back into, into waking up, right? There's, there's the military sound. No deposit, no return, no deposit, right? So there's also this wake up and, and break, your, break your simple face. You don't get to just lull so, out. But we're back to Leanne, because I think Leanne introduced the concept that both poems have both of those, both pieces have both of those things in them. Leanne, I'm going to quote from the liner notes from No Deposit, No Return. Uh, you didn't, you, you're not seeing them and you didn't anticipate this question, so forgive me, but there's something, you know, the chanting quality which makes you maybe temporarily forget about the politics here in the liner notes returns to the politics. It goes like this. On I'm telling you, I'm telling you, um, will the gentleman who borrowed the country by mistake please return game? How Hart Johnson, give me your tired, your hungry, your poor soldiers frothing to kill. No, 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 no deposit, no return. That is brilliant politics. Can you do... Anything with that? <laughs> Holy cow. Well, immediately just starts a flood of all kinds of other songs that, um, like the first one I learned was kill, kill, kill for peace. And I was like, what? You know, I just, this kind of just harsh parody that's so harsh, you think, how can you even say that? And you Kill know? for Peace is on yeah. the same Fug's second album, 1966. And it's the only other thing written by uh, Tuli Kupferberg on that and- album. So he had those two, Kill, Kill, Kill for Peace. Perhaps the, one of the most famous for the, the irony, but also the savage anti-war quality of it, along with this song. So he had them together on that album. But here you have immigration. Now, I keep thinking of Pierre in 67 on Route 66 looking at the American English. No, no, no. Here you have no deposit, no return, thinking about the soldier trained to kill to go to Vietnam and not return. And it's about your tired, your poor. It's a very complicated notion of going and coming to and from the United States. And the, the, that song about, um, you know, just like a jail in the U.S. Army, you know, he, he rewrote that, you mm. know, just instead of the way down the mine, he's like yeah. talking about the, 
the jail, the army. But I love that. How Hart Johnson. I love that. Yeah. How do you love and him? And the Yiddishism yeah. at the beginning of that little yeah. passage. I'm telling you. Yeah. And grew up in a Yiddish-speaking household, so that would have been a mother tongue. Yeah. So, so we're back to this funny thing. We tried to represent Thule's work, but we, it's poem talk. We only do one piece or two, so we did yes. two, and they're very different. <laughs> so what do we want, Leanne, people who don't know Thule's work to come away with from these two pieces? And then we'll get to doing some more close readings of them. What do we want to convey this way? Well, this this morning morning song is, I mean, it's just so this this gorgeous lyric. We've already, you know, sort of explored it a little bit, but you know, um, it always I can't help but free associate. I mean, like there's another song about um, the Carpe Diem song, and he says, "I see the young girl dancing. Come celebrate that gladness." Like there's this deep, you know, delight of life and love that he's like. It's erotic. It's a lot of times people think of the thugs as like, you know, I like boobs a lot and nothing, which are great, you know, but it's also, you know, it's this deep, deep, passionate love for people, you know, and, he's, and he wasn't a smarmy hippie like some of them were that I, that I met. I met them. And he was, he was the most radical feminist of the men and everybody that I had met. He was so gentle and kind and like concerned for everybody, you know, it was just like, it just comes across in the songs, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's the like voice too deep, is deep feeling. You know? His voice yeah. is not very yeah. overtly masculine either, right? right? There's a kind of gentleness <laughs> to his voice that I really picked up on listening to him as well. Like, like I don't want to say gentleness, but I, it's just not. He's just not hyper masculine. <laughs> that makes me think of the sentence that uh, Ed Sanders quotes mm-hmm. when he finally asked Tully, "Why did you jump off the bridge?" Mm-hmm. And Tully said. Because I wasn't loving enough, oh. you know, j- just one of those those those. This those is used to say under the river, but he tried to commit suicide yes. when he was young. right when he was twenty-one, and no. you know, in bad shape and and so on. Uh, in Ginsburg's poem, it's the Brooklyn Bridge, but it was in fact the Manhattan Bridge. Uh, <laughs> so like he's a, a character in Howl. He's a character in Howl, right? You know, which is but amazing. you know he makes but the the incorrect part I think in Howl for. Thule's biography, but correct me if I'm wrong, is this sort of like lightness of walking away, or, or both the lightness, but also like there's a kind of hyper tragicness to the character in, in Howl, and it seems like it feels very much that this was a defining moment for Thule in terms of the life force that Leanne is so talking about. But you know, he was lighter. He was not that you know. Alan makes this into the you know the, ah, the absolute. And truly, yeah, it was something truly did. And, you know, probably said, oh, my God, that was a stupid thing to do. Yeah, it's and defining. he was in a body cast for a while, but, you know, he, he, he was okay. And he went on and he got up the way he always did. I mean, there's that, that odd, wonderful quality. And that quality is in the work. I mean, Yeah, I mean, for me, that goes to this song, Morning, Morning, because, um, right, I mean, I also, back to the Yiddishisms, I, I was thinking about very like kind of ecclesiastical, but also uh, this song that we sing at Passover called Dayenu, right? Which is it would have been enough. Like if you if you gave us the sun, it would have been enough. If you gave right, we suffer even though it's beautiful. But each of the stanzas has that kind of 
balance. And then there is this last stanza, again, back to what Leanne is saying, which says it sort of looks for the palliative of love. Right. Although I would, you know, I, I, I see, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds like that. One thing I want to note, born Naftali, he's, he's born in 1923, so he's older than not only Allen Ginsberg, but most of the new American poets, because one of the things I'm interested to do, it, partly because of my own not considering him adequately, is to think about him as one of the great figures of the new American poetry, though never acknowledged within the poetry context. This poem, unlike uh, Ecclesiastes and a lot of other poems that it seems to sound like, is actually a poem that comes from a clinical depression, and the things that normally would cheer you up don't cheer up the speaker of the poem. And I think that this is really what caught me when I was young, too, about it. I never really thought about it, actually, until he died. And then I went back and I said, you know, that's the song I know the best. Because almost every other pop song and all these other things, something good happens. Whereas this is, no matter what happens, he remains depressed. The last line is, weep, I weep. And and, and even in the case of the love, it means that the love coexists while you're still being sad. It doesn't cheer you up. And I think this is another very powerful thing within this moment of 1968, that somebody's willing to write a song without the upscale hook that it, it's, it's dark. Now, you could, I don't want to allegorize it about the war, about America, because I think it's coming out of an experience where the dark stays dark. And that's, um, you know, very astounding, really, for a pop song. And you almost don't hear it. It almost sounds like he's saying, oh, and, and then I'm feeling better, but he, ne- he never does. But it has an, um, it has, I only love, I was thinking of Celan's Death Fugue and the way I heard that first. You have an, an, a text that talks of, of, of something very grievous. You know, this is not as grievous, this is personal depression. But then you have the music or the sound of the poem of that one or of this one that is morning, morning you know, that, that is totally up. So that you have this, this, this incredible nearly dichotomy between the the sound the song and the you know and the text which puts you in a strange place you know a kind of it opens something that that you can slip in between yes. Pierre you've done it again you brought up Ceylon death fugue and you meant it Sorry. to be no you <laughs> I didn't mean you've done it again in bringing Ceylon in you've done it again in saying something brilliant because when you said death fugue I thought well that's a nice brief and, you know, kind of a scant reference, but actually it works well to make me think that mourning, even when it's not M-O-U-R-N, when it's just plain M-O-R-N, is still about mourning. It's about survival, because that doubleness (laughs) that you get in Ceylon, whenever he turns a poetic tradition around, this is the tradition of the morning, the sun is coming up, the day is new, we're going to be fine, right? He's turning that around to say, morning reminds me of another fucking day, <laughs> right? And survival is not greeting the morning and dancing down the avenue, but realizing that morning is survival and we are going to have to do this day thing. And poetically, that's the way it works. So I really think, I mean, Thule and Paul Ceylon, you know, not the, you don't think of them in the same, but I do think that he is trying to take depression and make it social and communal mm-hmm. and political, 
which of course Ceylon does in a very complicated way. I but think let's also I know think that's there. Like this the, is not. This is not. This is sixty-six becoming but sixty-eight. Also Paul this Salon, is a generational depression. Paul Salon is born in nineteen twenty. He's almost yeah. the same age, and How it's worthwhile like yeah, right? to think I, I, of the, them the, together. And and yeah, yeah I do think that's really important to what Charles is saying about the time, because I, you know, about going back to the suicide. Right? It's it's nineteen forty-four. What does it mean to be a a Yiddish? kite Jew in 1944, right? Like, how do you not be depressed? How do you not want to commit suicide? There is no mourning. Yeah. There is no mourning. There is no mourning. Yes. Mourning rhymes with grief, as right. in a poem here. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of great lyrics of, of don't really hold up as poems on their own. This does, and actually, this works perfectly well as a poem. It's a nice setting, but the tune is not what's significant about it. The, the text itself creates a very powerful uh Work as a poem. Also, this darkness without without um, remission is a kind of splendor. It allows for what a kind of splendor is. And and for me, and for I think a lot of my contemporaries, we we heard it on the Richie Havens album early on, where everybody I knew had that Richie Havens album where he sang it. So it had a uh, a crossover into popular culture, which was way before I had read any of the poets that I'm involved. What does it with mean now. that Havens covered it? What does it mean? It went into the into the stratosphere of the culture. I mean, it was really everywhere. I mean, known <laughs> on the radio and well, more than that. But I mean, like you know, well, Rich, Richie yeah. Havens was a, a you know very powerful figure with Phil Oakes, Bob Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, uh, Judy Collins, uh, only one of those people who is African American uh, with that deep resonant voice. He's the only one of those people really that could do a song like this, and. Uh, it brought this song into the world of folk music and the singer-songwriter, uh, such as the Fugs wouldn't have been. And actually, so it, it brought it to an audience that was interested and that was at the heart of the counterculture. I mean, that, which really strikes me, what you're saying about Thule, which is that he didn't do things for fame, and it, that that is so much a frame of the 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 oeuvre and the, and the milieu, which is... For example, like all of all of the songs that are from found music, from found material, which no deposit, no return. That's is, what that is. Yes, of course. That I was thinking they they're conceptual in a sense, but they never follow conceptual rules, right? So, like, no deposit, no return is not an ad line, but the other ones are ad lines. So that he's sort of free to break to start something and then to break it in the middle of it, right? Where we who study like avant-garde purism like things are like you know, or when those things get studied, one likes them to be you know more like a Caroline Bergvall and like a very consistent program right and there's all these ways which which the work in general like has so much just ongoing survival performance play attention to the to life as it's happening and within this sort of almost mundane ongoing chant of performance of the daily life these like moments these sublime moments come up right all the time Let's listen to No Deposit, No Return. It's only 50 seconds. And then talk about it, because I think we should begin with a lightning round where the, where the five of us just toss out the origins of some of these advertisements and then go further to talk about it as chant and sound poem and whatnot. So here. 
No deposit, no return. No deposit, no return. We try harder, we try harder. We try harder, we try harder. It's the taste that really tells. It's the taste that really tells. When it rains, it always pours. When it rains, it always pours. The army makes a man of you. The army makes a man of you. Only her hairdress and nose for sure. Only her hairdress and nose for sure. No deposit, no return. 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 Okay, lightning round. I'll start. Uh, we Try Harder is the um, rental car, maybe Avis, that's not as good as Hertz. Definitely. And they're number two. They're number two, We Try Harder. Okay, who's next? The Army Makes a Man of You. Right. I think it became a song, too, wasn't it? It was a recruitment. But it's, it should Ed. be noted that all, all of these for a teenager in 1960, in the late 60s, were completely legible because they were repeated constantly over the airwaves the yeah, one i don't know just, or no longer know it's the taste that really tells that that's a cigarette ad that's a cigarette yeah ad, that's right. a cigarette the they were doing really they were just counts. starting uh they were yeah. turning from non-filter to filter that's and right that's right menthol yes, yes. so that was a mentholating something rather what about the hairdresser it's clairol that's Clairol. That's about coloring your hair. Yeah, and, and only actually, your there's a video. Yeah, it's, to color it's a hair. kind of great ad. I just I listened I, I to it right before I, I watched it right before I caught it here. And yeah, so it's only your hair doesn't know for sure, and it's against gray hair. Yeah, well, only your hairdresser you. knows you have yeah. gray hair. Yeah. yeah, it's a youth culture exactly. thing. It's it's about our parents' generation at the time who started to buy in to the youth culture a little bit. The what I recall about that ad has to do with my mother, who is a, another Brooklyn-born person, almost exactly coming from a place like, like Thule, but who bl- dyed her hair blonde in probably 1947. Blonde is an understatement. Well, she was, a, she was a blonde, but she was a brunette originally. And all, only her hair, is she blonde? You know, blondes have more fun. Right. Is she blonde or is she brunette? Only her hairdresser knows for sure. Also has to do with that, which is a mark of assimilation. Nobody will know what your original hair color is. So, oh, so Clara was is advertising a, both things. In that sense, blonde is a de-Jewification. Right. I, I, well, I don't know if my mother would put it that way. Maybe it's a hyper. The real Jews would be blonde and be like my mother. So, <laughs> But yes, can we, can we, can we put that? Blondes have more fun. The, can that be the pull-out quote for this, I mean, for this the but program my, note for but this I think poem it's fair. But I think my mother wasn't trying not to be Jewish in her case. It was just that... Glamour. Okay. It was well, glamour. I think of her as platinum, but I think that came... The platinum came later, I think, is what you're saying. What about uh, when it rains, it pours? That's the salt. only one that's not more to salt. Yeah, salt. More and salt. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, it took me a minute to remember. So what's Tuli doing picking these? There are, is it random choices? Are they earworms? What What is he trying to do? You know, you have is that what he says on the album, which isn't true, is this um, an album of popular poetry, pop poetry, real advertisements as they appeared in newspapers, magazines, in direct mail. No word has been added. These are genuine texts. Parts of the ads have been repeated. Parts of the, some of the ads have been omitted. But these are the very texts. They are for real. 
Many of these were first published in Yeah, the magazine. Now, that's not true, of course. It's very funny <laughs> that he says, he's saying that there's appropriation without change, but some of them are not ads. You know, some right. of them are other kinds of slogans. Well, it reminds me of his practice of what he called para-songs, meaning like parody, but also beside. You know, and so he uses tunes that everybody knows, like, what a friend we have in Sigmund, all our griefs to bear, you know, like, instead of Jesus, you know, like, or like, um, you know, I see the White House and I want to paint it black and all that stuff. You know, like he's like using the earworm of the tune and getting to your body and your mind in, in all these different ways. And he's saying, "Look what you know. Look what I can do with this. And this is right. the, this is the this is the real thing that I that you need to hear." Like I don't Which know, which is like, really a classic detourment, right? Yeah. Well, I was going to say uh, he is the original situationist in well, America no. because oh, in America, right? Yeah, you know, in America, and this is det- you know a deturning of the classical thing, the same way that he disambulated through. New York, right. you know, I mean, he didn't need to do that French thing of going officially. He was just living that yeah, every well, day. I was thinking, Pierre, that tournament is people say that he's like he precedes punk, but he proceeds the situationist, and he probably knew about them. I mean, he's very he is Eurocentric and right in some of his aesthetic. Like he thinks of himself as a bohemian and not a hippie. And yeah, but 60, I mean, he probably just knew 65, about this He's doing this stuff in the early 60s. You know, and the situationists really uh, come out, you know, in the, at the same time. At the same time, And I don't yeah. know if the, you know, and I think this is independent. I think Uli does, uh, Tully does this here um, uh, because that is the way that the culture is lying and changing mm-hmm. and moving. And he's coming from that complexity of the Yiddish, Low, you know, um, when uh, New is York the Society of Spectacle published? I can't remember the date, but you know, it certainly was in the early 60s. But uh, when it got over here, when he could even had a look at it, I'm certain that he had not read it at the time he did this. I was but you know, that. I mean, I'm. I'm well, it's it, so society. It, it if somebody shows so, me that he did, I'll so stand corrected. To those yeah. ideas it's in newest book. iteration and, and revival in Paris is dated 66, 67, 60. Of course, it culminates in 68. That's a new version. But if Pierre is right, people, that Thule is the first situationist in America, then why the hell is he so little known? Well, this is why. So why are people going to listen to this poem talk thinking? Who is this guy? Why haven't I not? Why have I not heard about this? It, it's worth noting again to, to, to go back to his what generation he is. So he's or, or in his early forties when he's writing this. We associate a lot. Even the folk singers that I mentioned are all quite a bit younger than him. So he's a really a in, in middle age when he's doing this, and he's coming from a different place. And I think this is a very powerful kind of. Uh, aspect about what he's doing. It also, you could say, it's one of the early spoken word albums. It's a conceptual spoken word album. I listened to this uh, incessantly when I was a sophomore in college, 1969, and uh, over and over and over again. And, and, and I, you're, you're, you were influenced by this. Wasn't, isn't One to a Hundred influenced I've, by this? I, I recorded One to One Hundred, which is where I, I, I do a crazy reading just right? of those, no, exactly the year that I was listening to this. And I think it certainly gave me the idea though I, until I'm thinking about it, I wasn't aware of it, but it's the only thing I was listening to that was like this. I was also listening to Allen Ginsberg, which isn't like it. You well, listened to Ginsberg chant, sing Yes, sing I went Blake, to see right? him perform. And, you were obsessed uh, with that as well, right? right? But uh, Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. 
and they were associated in my mind. But just thinking of kind of spoken word concept, poetry performance, it's a remarkable record of spoken word conception. Also fit in, though, to the Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce. Right. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. And radio play. And Harry Smith recorded it. I mean, like, you know, yeah. like, to, to a number of kinds of yeah. recordings that he obviously he was hearing and 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 processing that age thing also relates to the fact that he really grew up at the moment of the Great Depression and he talks of his school where in the I guess the lunchroom the tables were clubs. There was the Stalinists were over there, the Trotskys were there, and he was often with the Trotskyists. He said, you know, and then there was some other grouping. So there was, in a way, a very a Marxist education. There was an actually political, serious thinking and reading that going on that he overcomes exactly in a way like the the the, Boer, the, the European Marxist also had to sidestep finally the classical Marxism, and he did that on his own without group around. Again, I think that links to what. So I So it's said really, earlier. I mean, yeah. a more obvious point which we didn't make anti-capitalist is that it's anti-consumer society, and that would have been again as a teenager listening that would have been the most apparent thing, that he's attacking the career man and the consumer society. No deposit, no return, as the chant was, of course, what would happen is it, 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 for, your, for your bottles that you're re- recycling. Uh, and, uh, but he's still talking about that in a way that suggests an economy, that the economy of the ad for the army, for the Avis used car ad for being blonde or, or uh, darkening your hair if you're going gray, all of that fit into a consumer orientation which was, like Kill for Peace, a series of cliches that were driving not only individual people crazy, but also driving America to its well, disastrous you're all, war You're all brilliant and you're all lovely, but you didn't but, answer my question. Yeah, I, about, okay. I, I, have, I have something to say. Yeah, so let me repeat because, what the question I, is. Because I How, think he if wasn't going for fame. I think no. he, uh, Charles mm-hmm. is in some ways answering your question by saying that, that he was countercultural. And what we're not but talking about... But countercultural should be lead to way, rec- wide recognition way, in our poetry Wait for community. it. Wait for it. It's coming. Come okay. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that part of the counterculture was it was, and this goes back to this like ongoing production, this massive production of lots of what is very mundane, which is that he was doing it also for a kind of daily pleasure, daily what people would call now like healing or like living with PTSD and facing trauma and it not being in a mode of of career and of getting the ring, but rather. A sort of ongoing performance of pleasure, and that, and what we really have not yet talked about is the body, right? And is is the sex, and is maybe the Reichian part of of this work as well. But are you sure he's not? No, I mean, he's not like anthologized up there with all in these, you know, the Norton anthology of poetry as much. But people know the fugs. I mean, they know the fugs. They know the fugs, sure, yeah. but that's they Julie, stu- but, but they're not. But the yeah. kind of like uh, like critical yeah. attention. Yeah, I know, but. That Jackson McLow gets is not being gotten. I think bringing up Jackson is a great is a great thing. Same age yes, once again. I did it on exactly. <laughs> what a great parallel. So you have. Is it possible because that they were also sharing in this idea of pleasure and breaking the rules, right? Oh own, yeah, like they share a lot and yeah. and, and anar- an- the anarchism, anarchy. right? Anarchy. The anarchism, anarchism, which is we also have, totally. like, which also has to do with setting out a conceptual idea, but then breaking it in the middle of. Oh, it, absolutely! Right? And there was a table in that lunchroom for the anarchists as well, for sure. Yeah, he doesn't mention it, but it was yeah. probably the you one got, that... you got to figure that, right? Anarchist tables. You know. Yeah, you don't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But so, Leanne, that matters. You, is that what you're saying? The, yeah. <laughs> is it possible that the pop poetry, which is a genre that he kept talking about, an evening of pop poetry, it's possible that the avant-garde or the literary history of the avant-garde can't find a place for him as readily as they can Jackson, somewhat belatedly. It took a while to, to have him completely get in there because pop poetry doesn't work for that idea. And you're actually the perfect person to fall in love with the Thule thing because you've been straddling all those categories. Do you want to say something about this? Oh, man. Um, it just reminds me of the Lynn Melnick workshop I just took called Love is Like a Butterfly, looking at the lyrics of Dolly Parton and like saying, let's don't be afraid to be corny and cheesy and like, you know, say some say something from the heart and make it political underneath. I mean, I never would think of Dolly Parton and Tully Kufferberg in the same breath, but it's true. Like they both have this little he twist. Her picture you know? in one of those books, her, her childhood picture. She's a Dolly fan? Yeah, there's a Dolly really? photo in one of those uh, books where <laughs> he has... Um, yeah. You know, like the photos of like fascists and and pop stars as children and those. Oh, books. cool. Yeah, yeah, but just like the song, you know, the song is it's just song form itself. Working in song form is somehow not always taken as seriously as poetry. You know, it's like um, something. As soon as you start singing something, people just hear that. You know, and they and they you can get the message in. But it's like they just get hypnotized by the voice kind of. And it's mm. like, you know, every time I do a reading that I sing a little bit, part of it, everybody just comes up and say, I love it when you sang, you know, like, like and, and that would annoy, annoy me for, because I was like, what about the other, all the complicated <laughs> avant-garde work that I just right. yeah, told you, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and that, you know, but Thule, I'm, you know, I, I love that he doesn't need that. He uses the term popular poetry and pop poetry. So I think that that, it, 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 would, it would have been hard to assimilate exactly what Thule was doing in with his contemporaries, uh, and yet once we do it, then it, it, it kind of makes sense. But it's also the case that he didn't publish a whole lot. The works that we're talking about are 66, and the other, it seems to me, fundamental work of his, 1001 Ways to Beat the Draft, is 1966-67 with Robert Bachelot. It's a collaboration. Uh, but he never published a book of poems. And without publishing it doesn't really put his work into the context in which people are reading him as a poet. At the same time, as I'm saying, I knew him and my friends knew him as a teenager. He crossed over into popular culture, and Leanne is quite right about that. But for whatever reason, that also was at that moment. He lived a long time after, and he lived a long time before. So, and I don't know what to say. I wonder what you think about that, Leanne. No, I didn't. I never met Tully oh, Kupferberg either. The term of... Um you know, the fugs were total assault on the culture. And I'm not sure if that sort of sounds more like something Ed would say, but it's, that's... But Ed Sanders published many books as a very literary person in a way that's, it doesn't seem to be true of Thule Kupferberg. That's the funny thing. When I got the invite to take part in this, I said, oh, great. I go to the shelf. I take down, I can reread Thule and do it. There was no Thule on the shelf. <laughs> there tiny was, little book. There okay, so there's listen to much, the music, Mockingbird. There was this much, yeah. this much Sanders yeah, on yeah, the yeah. shelf, right? And I, ah. I took the, the history of the frogs I brought with me. I, I looked in there. But then I looked at the bottom of the letter and at the two poems you're going to talk about. I knew them. I knew them nearly by heart, right? right? It's, it's oral. That's, oral, that's, too. That's, yeah. you know, that yeah. other aspect of oral But you know, my oral friend Bill Mazza has a huge collection of these, like, collages. Like, there's one on the body. 
that's just um, beautiful, like quotes of on uh, on the anatomy that he's found, and he's collaged them, and we would call that a poem now, right? It, in, in a way, like it's it's a classic before the moment, right? Like that that this kind well, of are. total about, found material in 1966 was not resonating perhaps the way but it was. 1001 ways to beat the draft is 66 pages and uh, but that's it's also not been written. reprinted it's written that's it's not a great literary poetry. work i would say that that work as a work you know stands up there with as a poem, great yeah. great uh, conceptual anti-war poems up there with 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 Ginsburg and so on uh, even though it's not recognized what i'd like to do is go around twice the first time is going to be a lightning round. I'm going to ask you to say one really brief thing, and then the second time will be a chance for final thoughts or something that you wanted to say today, but you haven't had a chance to yet. So the first is a true lightning round. It's your chance to say in brief to people listening, probably mesmerized by the five of us being so interested in this, in this artist. What is the one thing you would want to say to people who don't know Thule what will they find? What what should they find? What might they find in here that would delight them or change them? So, Leanne? I'm just going to read the last paragraph of this letter from that I found in my packet of Thule paraphernalia. To remember, although, yeah, we're going to go to hell in a handbasket, just, well, hmm, every day better than the next? Gather ye rose plays while ye may, and cheers, Thule. And that's a letter to you. Yeah, Leanne, dear. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. Rachel, what's one thing that people will find? I want to be a supergirl. <laughs> I love that. Pierre? Don't be fooled by Tully's simplicity. He is one of the most complex people imaginable. There we go. Charles? We need to have a collected works of, of Tully Kupferberg. And I think um, while I understand some of it is performance, some of it is music. I still think a, a written collected uh, poems or collected works, uh, because we're not talking about, in, in, even in the, in the 1,000 Ways to Beat the Draft, is the collage element, which is extraordinary. There's a lot of collage and cut-up. Just the, actually the list of the 1,001 is astounding. But the book is not just that. It's, it's a collage. Well, work. maybe Tender Buttons Press would yeah. put out a collected <laughs> tool edited by Charles Bernstein. Okay, now we're going to go around for final thoughts. This is something that you want to say about Thule that you haven't had a chance to in this conversation but really want to put into the record. Who wants to go first? Final thoughts. Well, the thing I said about the, that he was a very, you know, great um, feminist is that it reminds me of when he would, um, you know, he wanted, and he loved to sing, loved to do his performances. He just loved to do the material and the Fugs would only play twice a year or something at the point when I knew him. And he would do this, this group called the Fuxons, F-U-X-X-O-N-S. He said, you know, like Exxon. So the Fugs songs, the ones that he did, like the songs of Thule. And we would, and he invited me to be on the stage and I played in the Fugs. I was in the Fugs. <laughs> yeah, I sang with him. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, like? Yeah. Well, he. I remember singing, what are you going to do after the orgy? I want to read Blake with you. After the orgy, I want to eat something too. After the orgy, I want to be your friend. 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 After the orgy ends, I just want to be your friend. Give me a call. After we pet and ball, 
why don't you give me a call? You know, just like, ah, you know, and we did it all the time, all these kind of songs. And he, and he included people like Jasmine, the accordion player, Stephen, and whoever was around. And he would divide the door between us. And I remember getting $5 and 33 cents because he, he exactly divided every, all the money that we get from the gig, like the back, the back, what's it called? The gate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So did, was it recorded? Probably not. Oh, well, that's a, wow. Yeah, Who's yeah. going to top that? Yeah, that's a great about final Julie word. Patton in, in, in yeah. this conversation about Julie Kupferberg, Kupferberg, because right, like Julie, I mean, Julie Patton also is making art all the time, being, being political, finding ways to be both alive and political and serious and also engaged and mournful and, yeah, and, everything pl- she and having pleasure, right? And like poetry, bringing yeah. everybody in. And it's also really often so not recorded, difficult to make books of, but necessary. Charles, final thought? I, I'm interested in the distinction between chant and song and poem. So, for example, in the famous one that we're talking about, the subject of this meeting, no deposit, no return. And you could do it even with my lack of voice and accent. No deposit, no return. We try harder, we try harder. No deposit, no return. It's the taste that really tells. No deposit, no return. Only her hairdresser knows for sure. The It, 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 um, it has an ethnic uh, twang to it mm-hmm. that's not country and western, but Yiddishkeit, but <laughs> that nonetheless connects up to a lot of aspects within American popular culture. And so moving really to have Leanne, the child of Appalachia, and the very different <laughs> kind of song feel such a deep connection. And I think this is the kind of utopia that Tuli Kufferberg was interested in right, right. and enacted. Uh, When Tully died, he lay in state at St. Mark's Poetry Center in an absolutely gorgeous and amazing suit and decked out incredibly. And yet last night, I uh, talked, uh, Nicole and I called Miles to talk to to him. My son, uh, Miles Joyce Parafit. And uh, we said, do you remember because you were with us? And he said, oh, he was the first dead person I saw. And he was the least scary (laughs) thing that ever happened. (laughs) Which I think Julie would have loved to, and would love to hear. You know, there was that absolute beauty. I remember the, the also, Julie, Julie there in his uh, coffin, looking absolutely delighted with you know the world in a strange way. I love that. I love all the reminiscences here. And I just want to say like one more thing, which is because you know, thank you, Leanne, for that that song, right? That there's a kind of. Um, also lack of distinction between gay and straight in Thule. And uh, this moment, like you're talking about, Charles, with the sort of moving from Appalachia to Yiddishkeit, but there's also like the body transgresses and the transgressions of the body and how that important those transgressions are to being against against the war machine. Hyper, hyper meter vacuum tube penis erection device. It's another song on this album. I mean, who else is talking <laughs> about a vacuum like tube it, yeah. to, to, to get an erection? Which is probably that is another why. part of the scatological well, Charles, we're in the age. But it's also no, why, we're in the age why he's underground. Should, right? Where we should it's listen to his and why queers septuagenarian are in love. Yeah. Why you know must I be play? an octogenarian <laughs> in love? It goes back to what you were saying about the importance of the body and movement and really dance in a way 
in this work. And that's my final thought. I wanted to talk about dance. Again, uh, from the liner notes, very unusual bar- part of them. And by the way, you're going to hear two phrases that sound like Kupferberg, that sound like his name. One is cup of the world, and the other is on top of the top of the world. Um, here it is. And it's, it has to do with what Rachel was just saying about body movement and why we can't assimilate this art so easily. Keep moving, says the cup of the world. But I'm, we always away sail on top of the world. And keep moving. It also means the blood, the green, the sun, the us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So keep moving. Movement is life. Movement is dance. Movement is joy. So throw these symbols, C-Y-M-B-O-L-S, throw these symbols down now, other fucker, and dance. And it seems to me that, you know, movement is literal movement, but here, but it's also this person who is not going to sit still. Morning, morning is about like barely getting to the next day by standing up on your feet, by, you know, starting it over again. And that's a kind of movement, a kind of dance. He's dancing around the genres. Exactly. Exactly. And it makes me realize that really it's not 1968 that he's cathected to, but in Al Fillory's sense, 1960. Because if we think of this as, as an extension of what you write about in 1960, it even is more powerful than to think of it as a premonition or an augury of 68. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. In advance of a book about 1960 that will come out after this is being recorded. So there you go. <laughs> um, well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands. Speak for yourself, Al. To gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend something or someone going on in the poetry world or the music world or the art world or the film world. Who's got a recommendation? Who's ready? Leanne. Well, I just, I've been amazed at this amazing uh, explosion of um, sort of poetry workshops, but refigured um, that have happened since the pandemic, like Philip Marinovich already did his, but the, now it's, they're continuing, like Ariana Rhines, Invisible College, and Dorothea Lasky, yeah, and and doing the witch poetry with Lou Florence, and like, you know, all these amazing workshops that are happening in communities. It's sort of like outside of the um, academy, you know, sort of remaking the need for that in a way, but like, you know, how to make poetry together, you know, online. It's been this major explosion, which of course Mod Poe is part of as well, but it's like this sort of extracurricular thing that's really happening underground, you know. It's a great day to be saying this after a long discussion about Thule, I think. Rachel, uh, do you yeah, have so, a Yeah, so and I was thinking paradise? about truly, I was like, what's, what's my paradise? And there's two um, books, uh, actually both by people involved in Belladonna, but um, that I'm going to be writing on. They're both reprints, republications, you know, full-on re- um, new editions. Gail Scott's Heroine and Akilah Oliver's The She Said Dialogues, Flesh Memory. And Akilah's has an introduction from Tracy Morris, and Gail Scott's has an introduction at New Forward by Eileen Miles. And these are both books that also catalog daily political existence very much through lesbian feminist sexuality and sex and pussy and, you know, and all kinds of things. So I, I was thinking about, and I'm um, Thule when I was thinking about these Marvelous. two new That's great. Cups. And, and the Aquila book, who published that? Oh, that's Nipo and Gail Scott's heroine is, is um, Coach House. Excellent. Great. Charles? 
if you like Home Talk, go to Penn Sound and listen to close listening interviews with lots of poets. And who most recently? Uh, well, the most recent one I'm going to incorporate into it is an interview I did for the Brooklyn Rail of Etel Adnan, but I've included it on the close listening page uh, with audio because it's a similar kind of format and could talk a lot about Etel uh, in connecting up to this as, as well, also the same age. And how, um, Etel, how many, I always how many, say Etel, but it's Etel. How many close Etel. listenings are there? I don't know. There's over 100 of them. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pierre. I am deeply into what I call the triple decker, Nathaniel Mackey's Double Trio, which is an absolutely amazing book. And so waiting right behind that is another now 92-year-old, Nathaniel Tarn's Hilda Linnea, which also so the two major works by poets, you know, late in their late in their work, and it's an interesting thing to think of Spätwerk, you know, of, of late of, of late work, but uh, that's it. I mean, Ma- I think Mackie's book blows me away by the sheer musicality of it. I mean, he's a jazz person. It's 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 pure music, you know. It's it's gorgeous. great recommendations. I've been seeing some reviews of the Tarn, um, and I was happy to see that. Well, my um, my gathering paradise is uh, topsy turvy. I am I am topsy turvy, and I wonder if what's going to happen here. Listeners are going to notice this because Zach's going to cut out the silence. But I'm going to ask I'm going to ask Charles to go somewhere into this house to get a copy of Topsy Turvy and to read the shortest poem in the book to us. This is very much a tribute to Tuli Kupferberg. Couldn't really exist without him, as you will this hear. Piece, this okay. is the shortest poem in the book. Turn off your poetry blocker. This is an initial alert. Aesthetic action will be taken if there is no response. <laughs> Topsy Turvy by Charles Bernstein, published by Chicago, a new book. Well, that's all the feeling lonesome in the morning we have time for on Poem Talk today. Actually, I'm going to try that again. Well, that's all the army making a man out of you we have time for on Poem Talk today. I'm going to try another one. Well, that's all the sunshine putting us in our rotting place we have time for. And Zach, put that all, put all of those in. We have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk <laughs> at the Writers' House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writers' House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so, so, so much to my guests, Leanne Brown, Rachel Levitsky, Pierre Joris, and Charles Bernstein. And once again, Susan and Charles for hosting us. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, who came all the way from Philadelphia to hang out with us. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. A shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al, Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us next month for another episode of Poem Talk.